Hello and welcome to Sex Ed for Sex Med, a podcast produced by the Ohio Sexual Health Collaborative for medical providers caring for women. However, women experiencing sexual difficulties who perceive a lower quality of life do not feel like themselves and are looking to increase their knowledge of sexual health are also encouraged to listen. I'm your host, Dr. Terry Gibbs, and together with my rotating medical experts, we'll be providing evidence-based fundamental and advanced concepts for evaluating, educating, and empowering women with sexual concerns. We'll be addressing physical, mental, and sexual health wellness as all these aspects are important to enjoying a healthy sexual life. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Kim Fuller, president of Cleveland Sex and Intimacy Counseling, associate professor at Cleveland State University in the School of Social Work, certified sex therapist, and board member of the Ohio Sexual Health Collaborative. Today, we'll be talking about sexual health care of the LGBTQ community. Please enjoy this podcast. So today we're talking with Dr. Kim Fuller, and we're discussing healthcare of the LGBTQ community, which uh, she's an expert in and has written some some chapters on, and is a educator regarding this subject. So, thank you, Kim, for for coming and talking to us and, and lending your your expertise. Really happy to have you. Thank you for having me on again, Terry. I'd like to kick this off with just. Tell us your views, and would you explain why the need for education is so important uh, regarding this community? So we know in general that providers get very limited, whether or not we're talking about sexual medicine clinicians, sex therapists, pelvic floor physical therapists, get very little information on sexuality as a whole. And when we break it down to LGBTQ plus issues, we're talking about probably one hour across the course of most programs. If you're lucky, you have a specific class around it. But there are just specific needs that the LGBTQ plus community has, in particular, differences in sexual experiences for folks who are transgender, perhaps um, differences in how they may see or interact with their genitals, differences based on testosterone or estrogen use that may impact their sexual functioning. And so many folks who identify as LGBTQ plus feel often that their healthcare provider doesn't really know a lot about their experiences. And even then, a large portion feel like many times healthcare providers don't want to know the important details or don't know how to ask appropriately the important details that could help them in providing treatment or care, or even feeling safe or affirmed in their provider's room. Let's take this a step further. And and would you define for us the gender identity versus the sexual orientation versus sex at birth? Yeah. So I think this language is something that can get really tripped up. I think people often conflate gender identity and sexual orientation. And while they're important, we use our gender identity to often talk about the people that we're attracted to. They are really different categories. So sex assigned at birth is the phrase that we use to describe the chromosomal, hormonal, 
characteristics that are assigned when a baby is born. We're literally talking about what their DNA says and mo mostly talking about what their genitals say. That's typically how we describe what a person's sex assigned at birth is. We know this can actually get pretty gray when we think about intersex folks who may have XXY chromosomes or may have genitals that aren't necessarily aligned with what is our stereotypical belief system around what genitals belong to a male and what genitals belong to a female. So sex assigned at birth really kind of goes, though, looking at more of like the, the biological components of a person's body. Now, that's different than gender identity, which is how a person sees themselves and their gender in relation to the world. Some of what makes up gender identity is how we see our bodies, express our bodies in relation to stereotypical gender, masculinity, femininity. But it also can be the way that we feel about parts of our bodies, like whether or not we feel congruence with our, our breasts or our chest or with our genitals. And so a person whose gender identity does not align with their sex assigned at birth would be somebody who we would consider to be somewhere under a wide umbrella of transgender. Now, underneath that umbrella can be folks who really identify as being sort of completely on the other side of a binary. So folks who may have been assigned male at birth, but actually identify as a woman or assigned female at birth and identify as a man or folks who are genderqueer, non-binary, gender expansive, gender fluid, agender, the list can go on and on and on. And just for use of language of vocabulary, if somebody does align their gender identity with their sex assigned at birth, we would say that that person is cisgender. And that's what that sort of means. So that's all the gender element of it. And when we unpack sexual orientation, sexual orientation tells a little bit about who we're attracted to. So if you are somebody who's attracted to quote unquote, the opposite gender, you would be somebody who's heterosexual. To if you're attracted to somebody who's quote unquote, the same gender as you, you would be somebody who might be lesbian or gay. But many people identify also as bisexual and pansexual which are folks who may be attracted to more than one gender of people. Or even the word queer these days has become a more expansive category that people use to describe their identities. Though I would say that's more so for the younger generations than it is for older generations of folks. There's still lots of, of people who were around when queer was a derogatory slang to describe a person who was gay. And so it's really important to kind of contextualize it and ask people what language they use and prefer. The last distinction I want to make that I think is important, which kind of digs this just a step deeper, is sexual orientation is about who you're sexually attracted to, but you can also be romantically attracted to somebody. And those two attractions can be two very different people. So if I ask some of my clients who they are attracted to sexually, they might say that they are attracted to men sexually, but they might say that they're attracted to women romantically, and they may find themselves wanting to be in one kind of relationship dynamic more than another based on that kind of attraction that they have to a person. And so people can have similar overlapping romantic and sexual attractions, or they can be quite different. So I know that I made what seems really simple feel maybe a little bit complicated, but I think that's actually how our identities really are, is a little more complicated than the labels we can give them. 
Yeah, it's pretty individualized, it, it, it mm-hmm. seems like. And there's just, you run into a lot of terms, which makes a lot of sense. You know, I can only, as, as people identify in all these different ways, when they approach medical care, I'm, I'm sure they run into some difficulties. Would you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. barriers that that some of these folks run into. Yeah. So I think a first big one is language as a barrier, just kind of how I was describing things. I think some people make assumptions about the language that should or shouldn't be used to describe a person's identity. I know my partner, for instance, once had an evaluation and she was sharing that she had been in relationships with men before and was now in a relationship with me. And the person said, okay, so tell me about when you knew you were a lesbian. And she was like, whoa, 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 let's pull it back. That's not actually how I identify. And so imposing our own ideas of what somebody's sort of language that they use about themselves can be quite problematic. And then making assumptions of what that means or says about your relationship, which can even go into making assumptions about the kind of sexual experiences that you have. In a place like Ohio, to sort of contextualize where we are, there's not as many affirming providers for kind of across the medical field and also across the mental health field. We have folks who may be friendly. They're not going to intentionally say something hurtful or hateful, but they don't actually know a lot about the community. And they may make microaggressions, which are sometimes just slights, like what I described with my wife, that can be hurtful or damaging to the relationship between the provider and the patient. And so that can be kind of a problem on on multitude of levels because the person may not feel like they can share or disclose to their provider. And they also might feel like their provider isn't competent to be able to provide the care that they need because they don't understand their, their individualized needs. When we look specifically at trans healthcare, I think there can be a lot of misassumptions about the kind of sexual experiences that a trans person has. I think there can be a lot of assumptions about like STIs or sex work for trans folks. And while maybe some trans women do engage in sex work, I think people tend to make these stereotypes and generalizations about those experiences. I think there's also a discomfort around the language that trans folks use to describe their bodies, especially, but I guess both post-surgery for folks who have surgeries and also pre-surgery. People may speak very confidently about somebody's breasts, but that's not actually how they describe that part of their body. They may describe it as their chest. Or for a trans woman, she may describe her penis by using words other than a penis. And so there may be barriers to feeling like the the provider is willing to understand how a person defines their body and also uses their genitals. And I think the, the last thing is sort of a structural issue in our healthcare system. If somebody hasn't changed their gender marker in the system or their gender on their insurance is different than the gender that they identify as, they actually might have barriers to accessing care. So if somebody was assigned male at birth, their insurance may deny their claims 
for an OBGYN because they don't think that they need to have that care, which if a person has had a surgery and now has a vulva and a vagina, they should be going to an OBGYN for their care. And so there can be lots of of barriers in that way. I think the last little one, just to kind of throw into the mental health side of things that can be a barrier for, for some folks, is that conversion therapy, which is a practice where people try to convince through a variety of harmful, damaging, and traumatic ways, LGBTQ folks that they should not identify as LGBTQ+. Typically, it's through this lens of it being a sinful identity. That is still legal in the state of Ohio and across most of the United States. And sometimes people will say that they're providing affirming care and find themselves in the hands of somebody who actually could be pretty damaging, harmful, or traumatic. And so I think that there's there's a lot of opportunities for growth across all sides of the medical world and a lot of barriers to being able to access simple just gynecological care. How would you start a, a conversation with a new patient? She is a woman, I'm speaking of, you know, we're taking care of women and you want to get into the sexual history. What's the question? How do you couch the question to make sure it's not an assumption? So I think when I'm meeting with a woman, there are a couple of things that I want to ask. And then I think every provider should ask always, because we never know who a person really is until we ask these questions. So one, just to go back to our initial language, I want to know what somebody's gender identity is to make sure that I'm representing their needs well. And that also helps me to couch some of my language. There's a lot of research that says labels are sort of overrated and it pigeonholes people to feel like they have to describe themselves in one way or another. But I tell people that I acknowledge that labels are problematic. But if you had to tell me a little bit about how you identify, how do you identify your sexual orientation? Um, And some people will use labels and some people will describe the experiences that they've had. I then think it's helpful to dig in and just ask in general, tell me about the sexual partners that you had in the past. And then eventually I would also ask, tell me about your, your sexual romantic partners now. And that language makes it so people feel like you have no assumptions about what the gender of their partner or partners are. It allows them to share the history and the narrative. So like my partner having dated men in the past and now being with me can kind of present that landscape of how was I here? What was that like? And what's it like here? And then I think once you've kind of understood the landscape, if you haven't heard the specific details about somebody's sexual experiences that you're looking for, I would then ask some general, but also explicit questions around, tell me about the kind of sex you have with your partners or the kind of sex you've had with your partners. Most providers, when we, when we use the word sex, and I think for a lot of straight cis folks, when we use the word sex, we're thinking of penile vaginal intercourse. Many people skip over any kind of manual stimulation. They skip over oral sex, anal sex, that's sort of out of their heads. And we're thinking about just penile vaginal intercourse. And while some people may use that, have that kind of sex, either because they're dating a trans partner who may have a penis or they are bisexual and in a relationship with a man with a penis at that point, or there's somebody who enjoys having sex with a strap-on or other toys. 
that might not be the only kind of sex that they're having. And so we need to make sure that we're asking open questions so we understand exactly how to tailor their needs through those sessions. If we're talking about sexual pain, are there tips and strategies that we can give them in the sexual clinician world, in the sex therapy world, and in the pelvic floor world that are going to be specific to the types of sex that they are interested in having? Give me some comments about just general healthcare evaluation for this community. Yeah. So, you know, you want to make sure you're evaluating a lot of the same things you would evaluate for any cisgender heterosexual woman that is entering your space. You may want to, you know, take certain considerations. If somebody's transgender, I think is perhaps where there are more considerations that we need to take when we're thinking about an evaluation, because you may have to get some education around what different kind of surgeries a person has had and what that means for their sexual health care needs. If somebody has had both a vulva and vaginal plastic surgery, you, you may need to do a, a gynecological exam, but it might look different than a typical exam because there may not be a cervix or the cervix may not be as important for screening as it would be in somebody who is a cisgender woman. We also would want to make sure a person's just general comfort level, if they're a trans man and they're having to come into an OBGYN office, how would that experience be for them? And and what is that like to enter into that space? So you would want to ask those questions and also ask questions related to how their body may have responded to hormones, for instance. We know testosterone, if given in too high of a dose, can cause um, some atrophy. And that may be causing vaginal pain. And if that's a part of their body that they're still using to engage in sex, what might that mean for their sexual health care? Are there any other specific things that you're thinking about, Terry, and no, related I, to I evaluation? Think, you know, I, I think what I wanted to bring out was just, you know, just to take care of the person in front of you yeah. with any special needs that they are concerned about. And, mm-hmm. you know, certainly somebody that still has breast tissue, you want to make sure that mm-hmm. you don't not address that, even though that mm-hmm. person might not kind of th- think of much of their breast tissue. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just wanted to make sure we just gave a feel for our learners of really everything we, we should be taking care of for this community. I know that sometimes if you have a trans male and they still have breast tissue, sometimes that can make them uncomfortable Mm. um, talking about it, dealing with it. How how do you deal with that in an office situation where people feel uncomfortable with maybe their genitals or their breast tissue? How do you deal with that? Yeah. Yeah. I think part of it is explaining why you need to do what you need to do and having empathy that the person is experiencing dysphoria. So if you need to do a chest exam, explaining this is what I need to do and why I need to do it, is there anything that I can do to make you comfortable in this procedure? And similar, if somebody has had had surgery or even if they haven't had surgery, kind of talking and, and asking them like, what kind of language do you use? And use that language as you're doing your typical exam. You know, if you're if some trans folks might call a vagina a front hole. And if you, in a typical exam, are saying to them, now I'm going to enter inside your vagina, 
you would instead maybe say, now I'm going to enter your front hole so that they feel more comfortable and it causes the least amount of dysphoria. For some folks, they might prefer maybe like a sheet or something to cover that part of their body so that they don't have to see it as you're examining it. But honestly, empathy, support, and and really trying to understand that person's particular perspective can really go a long way when it comes to healthcare and being supportive of, of this community. What about addressing mental health care or, or psychosocial needs for the community? One thing that I, I talk to a lot of folks about in general is that my practice sees a lot of LGBTQ plus folks. And we sort of have these two branches that we sort of see. We have just the branch of LGBTQ plus folks who want to go somewhere they know are affirming and know that the practitioners understand their unique needs uh, to just be able to talk about their depression or to talk about their, their partner stress without having to unpack everything about what that means and what kind of nuances are important to the relationship. But I then think we have folks who you know, come to us who are queer and who are in sex therapy and really do have some certain heightened experiences. We know that queer folks and trans folks are at a significantly greater likelihood of sexual assault. In particular, trans women are are more likely to be victims of sexual assault. We know that there may have been some unhealthy or negative experiences with past partners, whether or not that's men or women. Interpersonal violence is high in the LGBTQ plus community. We also know that biphobia is really high in the community. And biphobia is experience that bisexual, pansexual, or even queer people can have where if they are interested in more than one gender, there are many assumptions about who that person is and how their identity may affect them in their relationship. There are stereotypes that they're more likely to cheat or that they are going to leave a partner for another, for that, for another gender. And, and the list can go on and on and on. And so sometimes we see folks who have had those experiences or are coming in with their partners because they're having those experiences. And so that often needs to be taken into special consideration. Due to other factors, family rejection or or lack of social support in some arenas, or even just societal discrimination, LGBTQ plus folks also are more likely to um, have depression, anxiety, substance use. And we have to work through, you know, especially right now, the landscape is still needing to change. And I think it's going to take a long time until there is much more broad acceptance. And so we have to work through a lot of that. And and that all affects sexual health, because if you're not feeling good about yourself, if you're not feeling good about your relationships, if you're having depression because of your family of origin, you might not be interested in engaging in sexual experiences with your partner. And then you add on other things like, you know, higher expectations on women that affect all women. It can really compound a person's ability to be kind of engaged in their own life and also to be able to be interested in doing things that might be fun and pleasurable, like having sex. Yeah. I think in every community, I, I, depression is the most, the biggest sex killer I've ever seen. So I understand completely regarding gender transition, the trans folks, medical 
just medical versus medical and surgical. Big difference to you? Or do you find very unique problems in in these two groups of people? Yeah. So when we think about medical transition, we'd be mostly talking about either hormone suppressants, which are given... We, we have puberty blockers for youth, so we're probably not seeing a lot of those folks and thinking a lot about sexual health, but we know that trans women are, are given some medications to prevent or reduce testosterone as they're given estrogen to increase that hormone to help to align more fatty deposits and, um, and increase some aspects of femininity. I do see, especially when it comes to estrogen, there is a, a decrease in sexual desire for many trans women. And there's also a decrease in functioning, difficulty having or maintaining erections, because their level of testosterone is typically to a, a low enough level that if a person was cisgender, we would say maybe we have to consider testosterone as an, op an option to improve your sexual functioning. So trans women can report more difficulty with arousal in particular, occasionally with desire, because again, estrogen increasing, testosterone decreasing can, can be a recipe a bit for, for desire decrease. We don't necessarily see as many difficulties with orgasm, though it has been a complaint that folks have said about um, being on estrogen. And when we look at trans men and just the, the medical side of things, typically we actually can see a, a spike or an increase in sexual desire because we're yeah. having testosterone enter right, the right. body. <laughs> and that can be actually really difficult for them if they have not had surgery and they don't feel comfortable with their genitals, still continue to have dysphoria. They want to have more sex, but they don't want to have sex with the genitals that they have. And not all trans men want to have bottom surgery, but those that do, it sometimes can cause an increase in dysphoria when they're finally on testosterone because they recognize that uh, their, their genitals just don't align with what they would like to see. You find um, a lot of aggression with these people because, you know, the bodybuilders always talk about how they feel aggressive who take the testosterone? You know, I think with both of the hormones, there are some mood changes. I think there can be an increase in, in aggression. I think it's just sort of just an, a surge you would see at any hormonal shift in a person. I would say the same thing happens when folks are on estrogen. I've seen lots of trans women whose emotions have been sort of all over the place because the, it's entering their body and they haven't felt this, this impassioned by it before. So, you know, I think, I think the hormones can have definitely an effect on, on sex, but then add in surgery, top surgery has minimal impact. If anything, it has, it provides euphoria for a lot of folks because finally that part of your body is aligned. There's not really any typical or, or usual complications as a result of that surgery. Sometimes there's less sensitivity to the nipples, depending on where the incision location is. But typically a person's able to have quite normal functioning if they have any kind of chest reconstruction. But we, when we do get to bottom reconstruction, it, it can be a roll of the dice. And part of it has to do with who they go to for the surgery and how much they actually are thinking about a person's pleasure potential post-surgery. 
Some of it is related to just general surgical outcomes. When a person undergoes phalloplasty, you know, their idea is that they're going to have a penis, but that penis might not look how they imagined it to. It might not be the size that they imagined it would be. And even then, it it doesn't naturally get erect like a penis. And so they might need to have an implant to be able to engage in sex. And we don't know, even with under the best care of surgeons, we don't really know how the nerve endings play out and if a person is going to enjoy the experience or if they're going to feel more pain from the experience. And quite similar with any kind of vulva or vaginal surgery for a trans woman, we don't really know how the the pain aspect is going to be and how their body's elasticity will be for engaging in intercourse. And so some people really appreciate being able to see their genitals align more with their gender identity, but they may still struggle with aspects of their sexuality if their body isn't functioning or looking like how they had desired it it to be. That makes a lot of sense. I think in conclusion, I'd I'd be really interested in, in any nuggets of wisdom that you'd throw towards our learners. I would say the big thing is to just generally get educated and feel comfortable, work on feeling comfortable with asking about people's partners, their identities, and their sexual experiences. And if you are somebody who the topics of sexual orientation and gender identity are a growth edge, I would kind of lean into that. Try to do some work on understanding what your your difficulty might be or what assumptions you might be making about the community and really work to try to become a more inclusive provider. In particular, the numbers around bisexuality are far higher, I think, than are reported. Historically, we've said that it's been somewhere between 10 and 20% identify as LGBTQ+. But I think that more people identify under the bisexuality, pansexual, queer umbrella than we have documented. So I think a lot of people also feel like they might offend somebody. If you're asking what's your gender identity and what's your sexual orientation, like what if I if I ask a very conservative woman what her gender identity is, or what if I ask about who she's had sex with and she gets offended about that? And my answer to that is always, you know, it's pretty rare. And if it happens, then you can say, this is just a question I ask to everybody because it's going to make the difference for a person who identifies as LGBTQ+. Plus that you did ask that question. And it's going to make them feel safer and more comfortable in your office. And it makes you so much of a more inclusive provider just by adding in a couple of extra questions into your initial evaluation. You sure can't know until you ask, right? So Absolutely. Kim, thank you very much for spending this time with us today and for helping educate our learners. We, we appreciate you and, um, You have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sex Ed for Sex Med. Please find the articles used in today's discussion in the show notes for further study. Also, you will find the contact information for our expert today.